0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, raise your hand. we got uh, extra Bibles in the back. You can follow along if you're interested. We'll get one to you. Hosea, chapter 10. I've been working through the book of Hosea. All right. Um, Let me start here. Verse 1. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred places. Um, In Isaiah, which is another one of the prophets, um, in Isaiah, God compares Judah. Now, we're speaking. Hosea is a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel. You'll hear them referred to Israel, you'll hear them referred to Samaria, you'll hear them referred to Ephraim. It was basically synonymous with this whole region, the ten northern tribes of Israel. Isaiah was a prophet uh, primarily to the southern uh, two and a half tribes of Benjamin, Judah, and a half tribe of Manasseh. And Isaiah, um, in Isaiah, God compares Judah, the southern uh, two and a half tribes, to a vineyard as well. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, it, God, God is giving uh, the people kind of a picture of a man, who of a farmer, a, a landowner that's found this vineyard and he's cultivating it. And it says in verse 2, he dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And then in verse 3 of that same chapter, he says, Judge, please, between me and my vineyard. And then a little more, he says, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Throughout the Bible... Israel is pictured alternately as a vineyard or a vine or a fig tree. You'll come across that in the Bible. But generally, it's a plant that is expected to produce fruit. And God expects fruit from his people. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, he says, "...by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." Then, a little later on in that same chapter, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Jesus is expecting fruit from his people. God is expecting fruit from his people. Uh, Jesus also warned his disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 7 about false prophets how can you tell that there's a false how do you know between a false prophet and a true prophet he says this beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves you will know them by their fruits do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles even so every good tree that bears uh, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So there's a lot of scriptures having to deal with fruits and being fruit inspectors and, and all that. But here in Hosea chapter 10, it says here that Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. There in verse 1. Now the King James Version says this. It says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. If you look at other translations, I don't know what Bible you have with you, but other translations might say Israel is a lush vine or a luxuriant vine uh, vine. Excuse me. The picture here is a lush, a healthy-looking plant, a healthy looking vine. But the problem is all of its nutrients, all of that water, all of that energy that that was supposed to produce fruit, it basically made the plant look lush. The the leaves are green and the branches look healthy. It even appears to have lush fruit. But when you take the fruit, and I don't know if you've ever done that, you've you've taken some fruit and it looks great, and you take a bite into it. And I've experienced this with oranges a lot, but you know, you, and also it's like, man, it's dry or it doesn't have any flavor. And that's the picture that's being here. Um, the leaf gives the plant an appearance of being healthy, but it's all show. There's no fruit to enjoy from it. And God looked at the kingdom of Israel there, the, the northern ten tribes, and he says, your, your fruit's rotten. It does, there's no fruit. It, it looks good, but there's nothing there says, according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred places. The more God blessed Israel, the more God allowed Israel to prosper, the more they spent their gifts and their prosperity on the idols that they worshipped. And their prosperity basically led them further away from the Lord. You know, it's, it, I think it's true in a lot of people's lives. The more you're blessed, it's just like you don't need God, right? You, you, everything's okay, so you just kind of do your own thing. It's only when things start getting rough that all of a sudden now God becomes a little bit more important. We start praying more, you know, you go through a trial, you, 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 know, you, you, guilt, you start seeking God more. Prosperity, and, and prosperity is not bad, you know, of an, in and of itself. But it can lead people away from the Lord. Agur, who is one of the writers of Proverbs, and you probably thought Solomon wrote all the Proverbs. Well, there was a guy by the name of Agur that wrote the Proverbs. And in chapter 30, he wrote Proverbs 30. And I, I, I always remember this verse, but it says in verse 8, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, Agur, the guy who wrote that, understood the condition of his heart, and he was really being honest about himself. Lord, don't give me more than than I need because I'm going to forget about you. Don't give me me enough so that I don't go out and have to steal to survive. Well, the problem Israel had there is identified in verse 2. It says, Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. A divided heart means basically just that. It it means that your heart has competing loyalties or it has competing affections. But it's interesting because it also means to be smooth, to be slippery, to be deceitful. You think back on God's description of Israel, it's a luxuriant vine, it's, it's a lush vine, it's, it's got green leaves, it looks healthy, but it's, it's a deceptive health. Because the fruit is bad, the fruit tastes bad, their looks were deceiving. Why? Because their heart was divided between God and between the idols that they worshipped in place of God. The Bible has a lot to say about having a divided heart. In fact, a divided heart causes big problems for God's people. Why? Um, it will affect your spiritual fruit. You know, but even on a larger level, even a church, a fellowship like this church, if our church does not have a united heart, if we all have divided hearts, it's bad news. In fact, Paul warns different churches in the New Testament in Romans. He said this in chapter 16, he said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Avoid those that are divisive. Paul also warned the church of Corinth, and if you know anything about the church of Corinth, they had a great big problem with divisions in the church. In First Corinthians three three it says, "For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men?" You see, it's it's so important for a church to be united, to have one heart. In fact, uh, the writer of Psalms one thirty three says this in verse one: "Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity." Man, it's just it's a blessing. When a church is unified, when there's factions, there's divisions. You know, there's a, there's a group of people that are loyal to one person. Or, you, know, you know, do you know that churches have actually split over the color of carpet before? It's bizarre what people can get upset about. It's amazing. In Philippians two, Paul wrote this. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And this is what it looks like. I mean, to just say, okay, we're united. But what does that look like? This is what it looks like. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliest of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. That, that's what it looks like to, have a, divide, you know, to be, uh, have a unity in spirit and in love for one another. Well, having a divided heart is not only bad for a fellowship of believers, but it's devastating to the life of the individual believer. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said this. Verse 13, he said, No servant can uh, serve two masters. for He will either hate the one and love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's another word for riches. Jesus himself said, you can't love money and love me. You're going to either love one or the other. You're going to either serve one or the other. Don't have a slippery, a smooth, a deceitful heart in this matter because you're only deceiving yourselves. Uh, James also, in his letter, in his epistle, he warns that a divided heart, and here, there he calls it double-minded, basically the same thing. It affects your faith in the Lord. You see, because part of you trusts in the Lord, and this is what James was talking about in his epistle, part of you trusts the Lord, and part of you doubts the Lord. And the problem is, when you're doubting the Lord, you're never going to grow in your faith if your heart is divided. And then also in James 4, verse 4 Uh, He says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? It's interesting. I used to uh, do a a Bible study out at the county jail. And I remember one time, one one of the guys in the jail was doing a Bible study. He came up to me, he goes, I don't understand this verse It says that God's a jealous God and and jealousy sin. So how can God be a jealous God and and yet jealousy sin? And and I said, well, it's not the same. You know, I might be jealous over you or jealous over my wife or jealous about something in a bad way, but God is jealous in a good way in the sense that God doesn't want to share you or share your affections with anyone or anything else. And, And think about it in this term. You know, as Christians... We always tell people, hey, Christianity, it's, it's not a religion. It's not what I'm doing to try to become good before God. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with them. And in fact, the Bible goes so far as to even call it a marriage. Now think about a marriage. Would your marriage prosper? Would it be healthy if one or both of you had affections toward other people? It wouldn't. You know, I'm, I'm jealous for my wife's love. She's jealous for my love. I don't want anybody to get in between that. And and that's the way God is with each one of us. He's jealous for our love. He wants our hearts. John said this in 1 John 2.15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Bible talks all kinds of stuff about Uh, uh, all kinds of places about having a divided heart. In fact, the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, they had a divided heart. And listen to how Jesus felt about them. He says this, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty descriptive. But that's how Jesus feels about people that have a divided heart. That's the problem with the divided heart. Part of me wants to serve the Lord. Part of me wants to just serve my own flesh, serve my own desires to do what I want to do. So, okay, so our heart has grown divided. Maybe you're, you're, you're sitting here and you go, Man, I've got a divided heart. Or, or you feel that tendency to have a divided heart. Well, what do we do about it? This is the verse that drew me back to the Lord. I mean, this is a verse that I just clung to when I was dedicating my life to the Lord. It's James four eight. It says, Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Just draw near to God, man. He's just waiting to draw near to you. You need to forsake all others and love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In fact, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, God gives us promises as in, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God promises to, 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 to let you find him if you search for him in honesty, with all your heart. There's a song that we sing here at church. We didn't sing it today, but we sing it. It's called Give Us Clean Hands, and it's written by Matt Redman and Charlie Hall, and it's basically taken from Psalm 24. Well, let me read a couple verses to you. It says, We bow our hearts, we bend our knees. O Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. O Lord, we cast down our idols. So give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our soul to another. O oh God, let this be a generation that seeks your face, O oh God of Jacob. Right? That should be the cry of our hearts. Or we just cast we just turn aside all those things that are not that are keeping us from you. Well Ephraim had a divided heart, and so Hosea tells him what God will do there in verse two. He says, He will break down their altars, he will ruin their sacred pillars. Now, in the Hebrew, that he is emphatic. God is basically saying, I myself am going to break down their altars and ruin their sacred pillars. You see, they should have destroyed them. They should have cast down their idols, but they didn't. And now, because they never did, God is going to do that. Those things that you and I worship in the place of God. Because that's really what an idol is. Sometimes you think of this idol as this little, you know, this little statue that people bow down to. Well, people did do that in the Old Testament and times like that. In fact, it's interesting because we went to Israel and uh, we went into one of the museums there, and uh, they had some. It was in Tel Dan, and uh, they had these these idols um, that they had you know, dug up, uh, archaeologically dug them up and stuff. And, and it, it was amazing to me because I always, in my mind, I, ex- I expect this, like, you know, three-foot Buddha thing or something, you know, that people are bowing down to or a bigger thing like that. These idols, literally, they were, they were, like, smaller than a matchbox car. They were just little things like that. And yet that's what people were worshiping. They probably just carried them around with them and stuff. But, you see, that's what an idol is. You and I, sometimes we think of an idol, it's, it's just a small thing. Whatever you place in between your relationship with God, whatever separates you from, it could be a person, it could be your status, it could be your, your career, it could be anything, your possessions, whatever you place between you and the Lord, it's an idol. And you might say, well, it's just small. Yeah, but it's still an idol. Well, they were supposed to tear down their idols. They never did. So God says, I'm going to tear them down. You see, those things that you and I put in between our relationship with God, He's going to let those things fail you. If you don't deal with Him, He'll let those things fail you because He wants you to see the emptiness of worshiping false things. And So sometimes He'll just take those things away from you. And then you'll see, you realize, man, what was I I doing? What was I thinking? Verse 3 says, For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? You know, their confessions are, basically this is a confession, after their altars are destroyed. Uh, and they basically say, you know, this happened to us because we didn't fear the Lord, we rejected him from being our king. They're, they're finally acknowledging, at least this is prophetically, they're finally acknowledging what they've been doing. You see, Israel, the nation of Israel, originally was a theocracy, it was a nation that was ruled by God. They didn't have an earthly king. God just said, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. Just follow me, and you'll be blessed. Well, as a nation, they rejected God as being king over them. They wanted a man, just like all the other nations around. We want a man to be a king over us. And so God gave them Saul who was the first king of Israel, to be a king over them. And Saul rebelled against God, and so God basically deposed him and appointed David to be king over Israel, a man after his own heart. And so David was the king over Israel, and when David died, his son Solomon succeeded David, and God had promised the whole that whole line of David they were going to be the kings over Israel. Well, when David's son Solomon died then the northern tribes of Israel, they basically had a civil war at that point, and the northern tribes of Israel rejected Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and they instead appointed Jeroboam to be their king. Jeroboam wasn't descended from David. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. And so um, from then on, they were just appointing other men to be kings, over them and not any that God had appointed. By the time of Hosea's writing, the prophet that we're reading this morning, the last four kings had been murdered, basically assassinated by their successors. See, they had continued to reject God from ruling over them. Their last king, Hosea, when the, the Assyrians come and they invade Israel and they, they take them all off into Assyria, that last king, Hosea, would be unable to deliver them as well. That's what they're acknowledging, and that's what they will acknowledge. So verse 3 is talking about. Verse 4, they have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The nation of Israel had broken covenant with God. And because of that, judgment, it says, would spring up like hemlock, which is basically a poisonous plant in their crops. Covenant breakers. What are they? They're, they're basically people who make vows and then break them. They break their promises. This culture, our culture, it seems like that's just rampant in our culture, isn't it? People say they're going to do something, and then they don't. They break their covenants. They break their vows. They don't keep their words. In fact, you know, if you want to stand out in your culture, if you want to stand out at work among your peers, you want to be like this stellar employer, just be faithful. Because that's a rare commodity these days, faithfulness. Verse 5, it says, The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel." As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. What is that talking about? Well, Beth-Avon was a town on the east side of Bethel. It was right next to Bethel, but it was on the east side of it. Bethel is where one of the locations where Jeroboam, that first king of the northern ten tribes, he set up a golden calf for the people of Israel to worship because he didn't want them going down to the temple in Jerusalem because that's going down into the other country. you know, And And he didn't want their hearts, the hearts of the people, to get drawn back to Judah, back to the temple. So he said, hey, You don't need to go down there and worship God that way. We'll just set up this idol here. We'll set one up in Dan in the northern, and we'll set up one down here in Bethel. You guys can worship the Lord here. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. That's basically what he did. And so one of those calves was set there at Bethel. Beth uh, means house. And uh, so this is Beth-Avon. And Avon means vanity. Some of your Bibles might say wickedness. But basically, it's it's the name of it is the house of vanity or the house of wickedness, where Bethel and you know Beth again is house, El is the name is a Hebrew name for God, so it was the house of God. So because of their idolatry, they turn the house of God into the house of vanity, and it says the inhabitants of Israel would shriek and mourn over the calf they worship when it's carried off to Assyria to a present to King Jerob, and you go who's King Jerob. Well, Jerob was basically the title of the king of Assyria. It's kind of like president is the title of the king of the United States. I won't get into politics. But anyways, um, but Jerob, it, it's basically a title, like Pharaoh was a title of the Egyptian rulers. And so this, this idols that they worshipped, and it was gold. I mean, it was made of gold. It was probably very valuable. That would be a present to the king of Assyria, basically. It says, Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. You see, they followed their own counsel instead of God's. And now they're going to be ashamed of it, because they're going to to basically reap the rewards or the results of having their own way. And when they realize what they worship was vanity, they're going to mourn. You know, it's interesting. Many times people go through their lives chasing after something that's vain something that just it just it's elusive and people chase after it all their lives and then as they approach the end of their lives they realize man they've 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 been chasing after these vain things and they've neglected important things some people chase after careers and try to make as much money as they can you know I, and i've i've been at people's deathbeds several times now I've 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 been with people when they've drawn their last breath, and you know I've never once heard someone say, "Man, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had just worked a little bit more overtime, or I wish I had done this, or Man, I wish I had gotten a bigger car." You know what's usually is the usually is the case with people. It's like, man, I, they they want to they want to you know make amends with people that they've been hurt, you know, that have hurt them or they've hurt. They they, they family also sudden family is important. It's almost universal. It's amazing, at least in my experience anyways. As people approach the end of their lives, they realize what's important. It's amazing how death brings everything into perspective. And people who know their death is imminent, and all of a sudden those other things, it just doesn't matter anymore. Well, as these people here, Israel, sees judgment approaching from the Assyrians, they will realize their, their error. The only thing, the only problem is it's, it's too late then. And it says, as for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. And the, the picture I have here is basically like, you know, a fast-flowing stream, you know, and, and you throw a stick on the water, and psh, it's gone. There's, the stick can't, it's just like turning and, and just going downstream. And, and that's the picture here. Their king who's supposed to deliver them, their king who's supposed to protect them, he's going to be just as helpless as they are. He's going to be carried off to Assyria just like they are in judgment. It says, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. This is the people of Israel. When they realize that the Assyrians are coming in and going to capture their land and take them captive, they are going to basically wish they were dead. This is literally what it's talking about. For fear of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had a reputation for cruelty and brutality. In fact, they the, the the history bears it out. They were known to cut out the tongues of their prisoners. They were they would even skin prisoners alive. They would cut off various body parts. The kings that they captured from these different nations, they would basically gouge out their eyes. Uh, they would take these large meat hooks and they'd run them through the lips and through the nose of their and then chain them and drag these people back to Assyria they the people were they just feared these were the most brutal this was the most brutal empire ever around the assyrian empire and people you know they would rather die they they would take mountains of skulls, and they would just place skulls, you know, in little memorials, basically. And the reason why they did it, it was basically to strike dread in all of their enemies. Plus, then also what they did was they, you know, if they conquered a, a, a nation, they would want the nation to pay tribute, which was taxes, basically. You pay me money, you'll be okay. And they wanted the nations to fear them and to keep paying them taxes, tributes. And so that's why they they had this reputation. And so when the Assyrians attack the kingdom of Israel, the people are going to cry out to the mountains, man, cover us and to the hills, fall on us because they'd rather die than be tortured and be taken into uh, alive to Assyria. Now if that sounds familiar to you, that the, that last verse there, it's because when the apostle John you know, he had the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he basically was witnessing the, what was going to take place on the earth during the great tribulation, when the sixth seal is opened, he heard some of the same things. Let me read this to you. It's in Revelation 6, verse 12. It says, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded uh, as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That generation of people that will be alive when the tribulation occurs, they're going to be just so fearful when all these cosmic disturbances take place, when that sixth seal is opened, that they'd rather die than stand before God. Verse 9 says, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity uh, did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. The days of Gibeah, we talked about that last Sunday. Um, Basically, it was uh, certain men, Gibeah was was a city in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. And certain perverted men in the city committed rape. And murder, and uh, the other tribes of Israel, when they found out about this, they came together as, as an entire army to battle the uh, the tribe of Benjamin and For two battles, Benjamin prevailed and killed many of the other people from the other tribes. But then the tide turned in the third battle. And God gave them into the hands of their own tribes, of the other tribes, excuse me. And Benjamin, as a tribe of Israel, was almost completely decimated and obliterated as a tribe. And uh, so what he's saying, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, it didn't overtake them at first. And so you can imagine that that tribe, they think, hey, you know, we're getting away with this. You know, God's not punishing us. They, you know, they thought at first they'd get away with it. But then God said, okay, that's it, that's enough. And now, and then he allowed them to be destroyed, allowed them to be, uh, uh, you know, to have to be defeated basically in battle. You know, God is basically saying you've been getting away with your sin, but you haven't repented, and so now it's time. Now it's time. I'm decided to punish you. That's basically what he's talking about. Verse 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods. Now, threshing grain, it was light work for a heifer. Basically, you're just walking around trampling the grain, separating it, you know, the the wheat from the chaff, basically. Uh, Not only was it light work for a heifer, but it was accompanied with plenty of food. Because God, when they had, when God had uh, set up the nation of Israel, He told them, He says, "Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading the grain." So it was light work for the ox. Plus, they could eat all they wanted as they're treading. You know, Paul later uses that same illustration to explain that Bible teachers and pastors were to support supposed to be uh, supported financially by the ministries that they do. Um, well, the illustration here. Is a picture of how Ephraim loved ease over obedience. You see, Ephraim was a well fed heifer, but a backsliding heifer. What's a backsliding, or what is backsliding? It refers to people who once had a close relationship with God, but they have since drifted away from Him. That's basically backsliding in a nutshell. Um, and it says God would put a yoke on her neck, and she'd end up doing the harder, less re- rewarding work of the plow, putting a yoke on its neck. It's basically talking about the yoke of conquest when the Assyrians take them into captivity. Verse 12, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Paul in Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Did you know that each one of us, we are all sowing seeds for ourselves? You might say, I'm not a farmer. No, but you're sowing seeds. Everybody is sowing seeds. Whatever you're doing now, eventually there's going to be a harvest. Eventually. If you're sowing good seeds now, you're going to reap a good harvest later. If you're sowing bad seeds now, you will eventually reap a bad harvest. Basically, your chickens are going to come home to roost. I like all these agricultural things. So, Well, think about this. What are you sowing for yourself today? The Bible, again, has a lot to say about that. And in Hosea, earlier in chapter 8, verse 7, it described those who sow the wind, and those people are going to reap the whirlwind. In the book of Job, even Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz was one of Job's, uh, Job's friends, one of the guys that sat around him and tried to figure out why Job was suffering. Um, he got this right, although he wrongly applied it to, to Job, okay? But he got this right. He said in verse eight, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he said, Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You're going to reap what you sow. And we're all sowing something. But you can also sow good seed. And that's why he says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy. In fact, James says something similar in James 3, verse 18. It says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so Hosea here, he's urging the people, he says, break up your fallow ground. What is fallow ground? It's ground that's been left untilled. And the rains, you know, the rains are falling and and the combination of rainwater and the combination of never turning the soil over, it basically turns that soil hard as clay. And you try to plant seeds in that and you're not going to have a good harvest in it. Well, people's hearts are just like that. You see, water in the Bible is frequently an illustration of God's Word. And so if you picture this, people hearing God's word, they're getting rained on. God, you're sitting here today. You're hearing God's word. But if you never break up the soil of your heart, in other words, you never respond to the word. You never allow it to sink into your heart. It never penetrates. The more rain that falls on your heart, and you don't do anything with it, the harder your heart gets. It's like, it'll get like clay when you don't respond to God's word. So the encouragement here is to break up that untilled ground of your heart, and allow God, or excuse me, allow the good seed and the word of God to germinate and to produce fruit in your lives. It says, "For it is time to seek the Lord, till He comes and rains righteousness on you." Man, what a better time than today to start tilling up that hard soil of your heart and allowing God's word to change you and to transform you. What a better time than today? It's time to seek the Lord. Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Remember, God is looking for fruit in our lives, and if you're willing to break up your fallow ground and to seek Him, He will rain righteousness on you. In fact, it's only His Holy Spirit working in you that will enable you to produce that fruit. Jesus said this in John 15, verse four. He says, "Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me." I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Well, sorry or sadly to say, Israel refused to respond to God's word. They refused to break up their fallow ground. And so he tells them, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. In the multitude of your mighty men, therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Beth Arbal in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly, shall be cut off utterly. Now Shalman is probably, I say probably because nobody knows for sure, but it's probably a contraction of Shalmaneser, who is the king of Assyria. Now, if I say to you 9-11, I bet you everybody here knows what I'm talking about, right? If I say 9-11, you, you remember. If I go, remember 9-11, you all know what I'm referring to. A couple hundred years from now, probably, there will be people that won't know what I'm what we're referring to. Well, Shalmaneser, or Shalman, plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Well, people don't know what... Where, Arbol, or where Beth Arbel is. They've got some theories, uh, and it's interesting. You can find five commentaries and find six different theories, um, but nobody really knows. But it apparently was, they knew, you know, it was, it was contemporary to their time, and so they understood. And basically, it says that this battle, you know, remember this battle that took place at Beth Arbel. Well, not only were the mothers made to watch their children get dashed against a stone, again, remember, the Assyrians were cruel, they, they, they would take their babies and just, you know, they kill their babies. But not only would they do that, not only would they kill the babies, but they would take the mothers themselves after they've witnessed their babies being killed, murdered, and then they would murder them. They'd dash them against the same stone. This is, this is the cru- cruelty and barbarity of the Assyrians. God says, as it happened to them, it's going to happen to you, Ephraim, because you've rejected me. Now it's tempting for me to just stop here. Actually it's not tempting. Timing is be a good time to start. But we've got to go into chapter eleven. Because if I stopped there, you'd have this I, you'd probably have this weird impression about God. But I want to go into chapter eleven for just a little bit here. Look at chapter eleven, verse one. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That probably sounds familiar to you as well because Matthew uses this verse. To say that it's a fulfillment of prophecy regarding Jesus. Remember when when uh, Mary and Joseph they took Jesus to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill them. Remember the wise men came to visit Jesus and Herod said, "Hey, tell me where the where the Christ child is so I can worship him." Well, God warned them in a dream, "Don't go back to him." So they went another way. When Herod found out about it, he started slaughtering children two years and under in in Bethlehem and that whole region. And Joseph and Mary they fled. And went to Egypt, and they stayed there until Herod died. So, and and so Matthew says this verse out of Egypt I called my son is a prophecy. It's a fulfillment regarding Jesus, but primarily in scriptures is like that. You you read some scripture, it's it's it has a contemporary application, but it also has a prophetic application, and that's the case in this verse. Well, the contemporary application is Israel. God delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt. It says when Israel when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son verse 2 As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. The they that they are talking about here is probably the prophets that God had sent to His people, calling them back to repentance. But they went from them. In other words, they ignored them and they continued their sacrifices to idols. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. This brings back memories of when my my children were little. You know, when you, you get a baby, they're just starting to walk. It's, just, it's, a, it's an awesome time. They've taken their first steps and you're trying to encourage them. And a lot of times you get, or at least I would, I'd get behind my child and try to encourage them to walk, but I'd have my hands there ready to catch them, right? Just in case they fell. And they wouldn't even see me behind them. In fact, when uh, teaching my kids to ride a bike, you know, first they're really nervous about it. You know, you, you hold on to the seat, and you run down, this, down the street, and you, you, man, it's a lot of work doing that, but I remember, you know, you do that, and then finally you let go, and they don't even realize that they're pedaling by themselves. You know, it's, 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 it's fun doing that. Luke spoiled my fun, and I don't mean to embarrass him. He's my youngest son, but, but one day, and I was, you know, I had taught all three of my kids to ride two-wheelers. One day, my other son, Nathan, comes in the house and goes, Dad! Luke's riding a two-wheeler. I said, "What?" <laughs> and I never even trained him. Here he just, and sure enough, went outside. There he is riding a two-wheeler. I'm like I guess I missed out on that one, but but you get the idea. You know, you're behind him, and you're you know they don't even realize that you're holding them up. And this is what God is saying, man. Like a child, I was right there supporting you. You didn't even realize I was supporting you. I think about when I was a baby in Christ, when right? I just given my heart back to the Lord, just just walking the stupid things that I did, the foolish things that I did, and God was there to hold me up to keep me. You know, I did some embarrass, I embarrassed myself in a lot of situations, but God was there to He just just like a just like a loving parent, just there ready to catch me if I fell. That's how much God loves Israel. That's how much God loves you and I. It's verse four. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Here, you get the picture here of God's love. He patiently, lovingly drew them to him. He lifted the yoke of slavery off of them. This is the same thing he's done for each of us. Who, when, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's freed you from the bondage of sin. He's lifted that yoke off of your neck. It says he stooped and fed them. That says a lot to me, because sometimes you think, well, God just expects perfection. And, 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 and you know, I have to get my life together before I, can, before I can approach God. But that's not how God operates. God stoops down to us. In fact, he stooped down by sending his son to become a man, to live among us, to die for our sins. God <laughs> stooped down to, our, to us where we were in the muck and the mire. That's the great love of God towards each one of us. He doesn't say, you come up to me and worship me. No, he came down to us. He stooped down to feed them. Verse 5, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. God says they're not going to go back to Egypt. Instead, they're going to Assyria because they refuse to repent because of their own counsels. In other words, they followed their own dictates of their heart. And you know, as a as a parent, you watch your child make these mistakes sometimes, and it just it breaks your heart. But it's you know, you, you got to let them go at some point. But it can it can be heartbreaking. Parenting is not a not an easy an easy task. Verse 7, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. And they're just prone to sinning against Him. They're prone to drifting away from Him. Again, speaking of the divided heart, they call to Him, but their heart's divided. Even though they call to Him, they don't exalt Him. I've known people who, you know... They talk about God and they pray to him when they're in trouble. But as soon as they're out of trouble, they forget about God and they continue their lives of rebellion. I had a friend, his daughter went through a real, when she was born, went through a horrific thing, almost didn't survive, and he made all these promises to God. And then, and then you know, his, his daughter survived and things. And you look at his life now, he's not walking with the Lord. He's doing his own thing. It just, that's the human heart. That's the human nature. Verse 8, but look at this. This is amazing. How can I give up or how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I mean, this is such a a, a precious verse. It just gives you a glimpse into the heart of God's mercy. Adma and Zeboim, those are two cities near Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroyed? Those two cities got destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says to, to Ephraim, how can I abandon you and destroy you? You see the love of God there. In Psalm 145, verse 8, we're told, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. God basically says, how can I abandon you? How can I destroy you? He's heartbroken over the sin of His people. They're going to go into captivity, but God says, I'm not going to abandon you. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. Again, they were going to go into captivity, but God's not a man. God's not unforgiving. God's not vengeful. God's not ruled by his emotions. God is merciful and compassionate, greater than any man's compassion could ever be. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, in, it's infinite. I, I look at my own life. How many times has God forgiven me when I've sinned over and over and over again? When I let him down, when I've, you know. And, and it's just, it's continuing grace, continuing mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I deserve hell. I do. God in his mercy has spared me from that. I like what F.B. Meyer said about this. He said, if we were dealing with man, we might despair. But we are dealing with the one who forgives us according to the riches of his grace. If a backslider should read these touching appeals, let him be encouraged to retrace his steps one by one, sure that the Father waits to welcome him where the bypath has broken off from the main road. In other words, wherever you, wherever you drifted off in your relationship with God, you just retrace your steps back to you, you'll find He's there. He's there waiting for you to come back to Him. Verse 10, They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Now, the nation of Judah, they went into captivity about 100 years later by the Babylonians. They returned to the land of, of, of Israel. But there's no record in the Bible of Ephraim coming back into the land. And so there's a lot of theories. People talk about the lost tribes of Israel and all this stuff. But here, and I don't describe to that, by the way, but here is God's promise that they'll once more return to the land in the last days. And I believe this is a prophecy that you and I are physically seeing being fulfilled right now with the nation of Israel. There's Jews coming from all over the world, and who knows what tribe they're from, God knows, but they're coming into Israel. It's, it's amazing because they've got, you know, they've got uh, African Jews, uh, Spanish Jews, South American Jews, you know, uh, European Jews. Uh, You you can name any country or any continent, maybe not Antarctica, I don't know, maybe there are, but they're Jews from, and they they look, and they have that same culture, but they're Jews, and they're coming back into the land, and this is God's promise, to bring his people back into the land. And, of course, um, when Jesus returns, he's going to be roaring like the lion. You know, right? he he basically was... um, uh, I was going to say the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, he, he, he died for our sins. It, he was meek and humble. He died for our sins, but he's coming back as the lion of the tribe. There's a phrase. I forgot it. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but basically what this is hopefully an encouragement to do, God is faithful to his promises. God's faithful. If you seek him with all your heart, if you turn your heart back to him, he'll let you find him. That's, that's God's, it's not my promise, it's God's promise to you this morning. Um, we're going to have communion this morning. Luke, you want to go ahead and come on up?